Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Join me as I interview and promote living composers. In this series of interviews, I talk with composers about their musical journeys, their past successes and setbacks, and their current projects. For more information about this podcast, as well as a complete archive of episodes, please visit sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Natalie Dietrich. Currently pursuing a PhD in music composition at Princeton, she holds MM and MMA degrees in music composition from Yale University. Natalie is primarily known for her choral and orchestral works, rhythmic layering, and creative use of unconventional texts. Her music has been performed by such ensembles as the Albany Symphony, the New Jersey Symphony Orchestra, the New York Youth Symphony, and the Shanghai Symphony, among others. She has been awarded fellowships from the Bang on a Can Summer Festival and Big Sky Conservatory. Natalie Dietrich, welcome to Movable Dough. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. All right. Well, you and I have never met before, so I'd like to learn all about you. <laughs> I read online that you came from uh, Harleysville, Pennsylvania. Is that where you grew up? Yeah, absolutely. I was born in a Philadelphia hospital, but uh, Harleysville is a small town about 45 minutes outside of Philly in the suburbs. And that's where I grew up and spent most of my life until college. Awesome. Did you grow up in a, a musical family there as well? I, I did. Um, so my my mother has a great voice. She has perfect pitch and she, nice. <laughs> um, which is really, it was, it was actually kind of a funny story when I found out that she had perfect pitch because she didn't know. She didn't know that that was something that, you know, some people have, <laughs> some people don't. And I didn't inherit that from her, but um, she was able to pick up things so easily by ear. She played the flute and things like that. Um, but she'd never studied, you know, pursued music as like a professional career or anything, but it was in her, it was in her life uh, earlier on for sure. And my, uh, my great uncle George was also a fabulous musician. He was, basically a child prodigy he'd play wow. he played the piano the trumpet the banjo the guitar he could probably pick up anything and learn how to play it that's fabulous so thinking back into your childhood what's the earliest musical memory that you have so I've, i kind of have two two memories my first as like a as a performer of music and then as a listener of music mm -hmm. um, so i my first instrument was the piano i started playing when i was seven and the first song, I remember the very first song that I played out of our songbooks was called The Seabees because the two notes in the piece were C and B. And I was very thrilled to <laughs> have accomplished such a feat. Sounds like a complicated song. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a tough one. I think I memorized it eventually. Um, but yeah, my, I'd say my first um, kind of listening, kind of concert experience would be, I went to see Dave Brubeck when I was pretty young. And that was, that was a really cool opportunity to hear something that, you know, I didn't grow up really listening to jazz or anything. I listened to more classical music when I was mm -hmm. a child. So it was really cool to see something that was kind of fresh to my ears. Yeah. So I know eventually you, you picked up violin as well, correct? Yeah, I started pursuing that. My my parents had a coworker and said, "Hey, I have this violin and clarinet. I know your daughter is, you know, plays piano. Would she be interested?" And they said, "Absolutely." So I started just kind of I already knew how to read music, so I just started kind of teaching myself how to play violin um, before studying it more seriously in college. 
Okay. Would you, so would you say violin became more of your primary instrument, uh, over piano or sort of side by side? Yeah. So, I mean, I, um, I originally went into, went into college as a music education major with piano Mm -hmm. as my main instrument and very quickly within the first semester, I was like, Oh, this is not for me. (laughs) (laughs) This is, it doesn't seem, you know, it doesn't seem quite like where my passions lie. And, you know, I, wanted to be involved in the orchestra. So I went to the violin professor and I said, Hey, could I also be an orchestra? And I started playing and she was impressed that I had gotten to that place pretty much self-taught with like a few lessons. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's like, wow, you should, you could really improve and, you know, make this a thing. And I was like, okay, that sounds, it <laughs> <laughs> sounds awesome. So, um, so quickly I switched to becoming I switched from being a music education major in piano to performance with violin as my concentration. And then composition wasn't far behind. I kind of made a whole 180 my first semester in college. Yeah. So where did that interest in composition come from? It came from, well, I mean, I, looking back on my childhood, I would write little ditties at the piano or arrange something for a vocal group I was in or a violin trio. And I never really thought of that as composition I never really knew growing up that composers were like alive people you know I thought they were all dead (laughs) I didn't realize that I mean I know I knew there were pop artists and things like that but I did I was very unaware of this whole world of composition and got introduced to that kind of quickly um I had one, I had one night where a friend of mine said, you should try writing something and I'm like okay and you know kind of scoffed at the idea and just, but I sat down, I was curious. I just got Sibelius, the, you know, the software mm-hmm. for writing, one of the software options for writing music. And I just started writing this piano piece and it sounded very much like, I don't know, like Rachmaninoff, which is what I really love to play on the piano. Um, but it, you know, so it sounded very, you know, antiquated in a way, but it, I was, I was very, very excited about being able to kind of create something out of nothing. And yeah. I think, think something in my life changed that that night (laughs) (laughs) so besides Rachmaninoff were there other composers or artists that were sort of inspiring your composition as you uh, as you began writing yeah well I mean I started you know when I grew up I was listening to like the classical and romantic kind of composers a lot of Beethoven and Liszt and Rachmaninoff as we said Um, and my interest as I started to write began to mature I started um, I started really enjoying the music of Stravinsky and Shostakovich. And then w- around the time when I started um, writing, I kind of stumbled across the minimalists and post-minimalists music, especially the music of David Lang. I mm-hmm. think the first piece of his that I heard was Cheating, Lying, Stealing. And I thought it was it's so cool. It struck a chord with me. It, it, it hit very different <laughs> to put it colloquially then. Um, and it sounded, it sounded like, Oh, maybe this is more of a current direction that I'm interested in. Yeah. I can, I can definitely hear some of that influence in your compositions that I've listened mm-hmm. to. So thinking back on composition classes you've taken, uh, what is a lesson that you remembered from those lessons that you've carried forward into your career? One of the most poignant um, lessons that I had was in my undergrad, which was at Westchester University. I um, 
I had a lesson with Van Stiefel and he, he gave me this, this piece of information that has changed the way that I see um, pacing in my music, knowing when to make changes and, and stuff like that. So I kind of, and it, this didn't hit me in the lesson. It took me, you know, a few days afterwards when I was working on my piece, I realized that I have to put myself in the headspace when I'm trying to critique my work and figure out where to go next and what to adjust, where I'm, I need to list, trick myself into listening to it as if I've never heard it before, that if this was the first listen of the piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need time kind of away from writing. You just need a little headspace to be able to put yourself in the right frame of mind to hear something that way. And what Van Stiefel taught me, he said, you know, it can take, it can take an hour for you to write one measure of music. And in reality, it passes by in a few seconds, but your perception of time is distorted because you had been spending so much time on that one, two, three measures that it feels like, oh, I, I need to move on from this. I've been doing this forever, but it's not necessarily <laughs> true. Yeah, I've definitely felt that in my own writing as well. So I'm, I'm interested uh, in this journey you've had as a, as a composer. Uh, what is one of the biggest challenges or setbacks that you've encountered? And more importantly, what have you learned from it? That's a really good question. Um, my answer to that is, has less to do with career oriented things or, you know, development, developing in a musical way, but um, really dealing with illness. Hmm. I, right after I graduated from, from Yale, I got really sick. I got this freak case of pancreatitis that kind of set my body down into this like negative spiral of one thing after another. And I got was having a lot of digestive issues and couldn't figure out for a while what was wrong with me. I was losing weight drastically in a very unhealthy way. And, you know, it was, it was a very challenging time for me, not only dealing with that, but also trying to meet my deadlines and propel my music forward and continue my career. Mm-hmm. At that point, I had, so I had just graduated and was taking a year off in between school. Um, And I had a hard time adjusting the pace at which I lived my life to accommodate my physical needs. Mm -hmm. I, I tended, especially in undergrad, I was, you know, as a double major, I was in every ensemble and doing all the things and very, um, just, just, you know, just taking so much time out of my day to focus on, on, on work and music and practicing hours every day. And I had to do that to get to where I was, I, I believe, but knowing how my body is now and, or, or well, I'm better now, but <laughs> how I w- was when I was going through that struggle, I, you know, I realized I can't keep up the pace that I had previously set for myself and I need to adjust my expectations. And that was a very hard thing for me to have to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. Is that something that you're still dealing with today or I mean, not necessarily dealing with it. Is it something that is influencing the way that you work today? It is. It does influence how I work today. Um, I have improved drastically since that time, but I still, 
I realized, and I think this is also just kind of part of getting older, is that your your body can't push <laughs> itself in the ways that it could when it was when it was younger. And I need to respect that. And I also think I think I really was a workaholic in my undergrad in particular. So uh-huh. um, I've learned to chill out a little bit. I was forced into it. I had to do it in order yeah. to survive. And now I'm realizing, oh, this is probably healthier. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, um, I think I learned some good lessons from that. Well, good. Uh, moving into some of your work, um, I was reading about a fascinating project that you were involved in uh, called Choir Peace, which was an international multidisciplinary collaboration. I'd, I'd love if you would tell us about your experience working on this project. This was a very transformative project for me. I was approached by a sculptor named Felix Kinderman. He lives in Brussels, Belgium, and he had heard some of my previous choir music and had reached out to me about a potential collaboration. Little did I know how crazy this collaboration (laughs) was going to be. Um, This project kind of broke me. In a way, um, in a very, it it really pushed the boundaries for me of what I thought is possible to do in music. And I think part of that came from the fact that my collaborator is not a musician by trade. So his requests for what he was looking for were kind of, I mean, it it was like nothing that I had written. I don't do very many open score kind of, um, I do some aleatoric things in my music, some box notation here or there, but it's always very controlled. So Mm -hmm. this was a way of me really having to challenge myself to step out of that comfort zone and write something more free, but still true to my compositional voice. Interesting. What what sort of things was he asking for that you hadn't done before? Yeah, so um, he wanted the piece to last potentially for hours, potentially endless, you know, that can just cycle and go on forever. He wanted it to be conductorless, so no one leading the group. He wanted it to be easily memorizable. Because first, when you think of hours of music, you're thinking, okay, I'm going to have to write several several hundred pages of music. Like, that's right. what I'm signing up for. But <laughs> So, um, but he wanted it to be easily memorizable. So maybe just a few pages long, um, no fixed text and the singers are moving around in physical space and they're interacting with each other, changing their text, changing what they're singing based off of their interactions with other people. Wow. So how, <laughs> how, did, the, how did the performance go? How long did it last and what, what happened? So we... Um, this piece kind of acts as a living sculpture that is ever-changing. So one performance will not be like the other. We had a, we had much of a, much more of like a left to right performance of like, okay, first we're here in the score, then we go to the second page and then we go to the third page. So it was a bit more, um, bit more controlled than what the final product ended up being, which was where singers could really take agency with their, with the lyrics and with where they are in the room and who they're singing next to and be able to choose what to sing in what moments, but mm-hmm. have it have, still have some sort of arc where it's not just people singing over each other randomly. <laughs> so did it last for hours or is it still going on today? 
<laughs> well, the um, it's it's it has a few iterations. The first performance was, I think, about forty minutes long, which. You know that's that's pretty substantial. Yeah, yeah that's definitely substantial. Longest thing that I've I've written, but in subsequent performances, and I have to give credit to the Ghent singers, give them a little shout out because they have done phenomenal work on on this piece. Um, they have had performances last two hours, last four hours, and now there's actually an audio installation that was a 16 channel audio installation that is now uh, up in a museum in Brussels and that's going 24 hours for like three years. So, wow. <laughs> so uh, it has some, it has some length to it. Yeah, that is, that's incredible. All right. So I, I would like to know, you know, you've had these, these great projects in the past. So I'd, I'd like to know what's been the hardest thing about the pandemic to you as a composer. No, I, I think I was, I really um, was fortunate in the pandemic to have had the support of a university and to have my um, income not be jeopardized too much. Mm -hmm. But what was very hard musically for me about the pandemic is seeing all the other people around me suffer a great loss of income and struggle to make ends meet and have to really think on their feet to change some things around and make some money. And I know people who have had to, you know, take non-music jobs or, you know, their gigs stop and it seriously impacts their income and way of life. And that's, you know, the arts rely on that. A lot of people rely on that. Absolutely. So as we sort of see glimmers of light at the end of the pandemic tunnel, what's something that you look forward to doing or experiencing again? Um, so, in short, physical shows of, uh -huh. of any type, any type of performance where there is live music. I recently um, was fortunate enough to go to uh, a Latin club that I have gone to pre-pandemic, but one thing that really struck me when I went was, um, and I, 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 don't, I don't remember paying attention to this or noticing this before the pandemic when I had gone to this club, but I felt, the intensity specifically of the subwoofer in my body, mm. particularly in my chest. And that is a feeling that I just, I was kind of, I was getting a little teary eyed actually. I was like this, I haven't felt music this physically in over 18 months. And it was an incredible feeling. And I am so excited to, um, to be able to go to other concerts of any kind um classical i i really want to check out some edm shows huh. that's like i've never gone to one of those before and i've been a ta for an edm course for a few years now so i feel like i should probably get the immersive experience <laughs> that's right that's right yeah so I've, I've got a sort of a curious question for you here so if you had unlimited time and unlimited resources you could take as many years as you wanted uh, and you had all the money to back you up as you needed, what would be your bucket list composition that you would like to write? Is it a, a requiem, a, an EDM piece? I mean, what, what is it that you really have on your bucket list? That's, um, that's a very tough question because there are always, there's so many dream projects that one could do. I think, um, you know, if I had unlimited time, because, you know, I, I, love, I love writing choir music, but it's a double-edged sword for me because it takes so long for me to find a text, first of all, and then figure out 
what to do with that text. And I don't, mm-hmm. I don't exactly like working with set text that already exists, like poetry, for example. I don't think I'm like, oh, Walt Whitman, I can make that better with some tunes. You know, <laughs> I, just, I like being able to create something from, you know, like a collection of like words or um, lists or things like that and being able to, to create something out of that. So I think the unlimited time part of that question would serve me well to focus on some choir music. Sure. But I would, I would like to write um, some sort of secular mass, I think. Oh. You know, not um, something, some, you know, some big choir project that is, you know, it has like the length and the breadth of the mass, but it's not religious. <laughs> <laughs> Sure. Well, as a, as a choir conductor, we'll look forward to that piece in the future. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, all right. And we've got one last question for you before you take a quick break. Uh, thinking back of all the performances of your music, what is the biggest compliment you've ever received from your music? That's a good question. I mean, I get thrilled when anyone comes up to me and is like, oh, I loved your piece or whatever. <laughs> and people have told me that it's been very, you know, some people have been moved by my works and that's always so touching to hear. But I think, um, I think the fa- my favorite thing is when someone comes up to me after a show and they're like, I don't like new music, but your piece was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that because it potentially changes something in that person. Maybe they will be more receptive to other new music. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people get the misconception that new music is inaccessible or hard to listen to or very jarring. And it's not always the case. And I would love to open the doors for somebody to be able to enjoy something they didn't think that they would like before. All right. Well, speaking of new music, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back and listen to some of Natalie's compositions. Welcome back. I'm talking today with Natalie Dietrich. We're going to start today with your piece, Aeolian Dust. So as I was listening, I found myself imagining sort of very barren landscapes, emptiness. That is until about six and a half minutes in when the music gets much more intense. So I I was wondering what you were trying to, if if you were trying to evoke something specific as you wrote this. Yeah, I mean, I had had a kind of programmatic idea of what I wanted to do. I kind of thought of like space and the universe and just how things unfold according to their own timescales and their Mm -hmm. own separate timelines and how sometimes those events will coalesce into a single moment, either if they're unrelated and they just happen to line up or if, you know, there's some sort of butterfly effect where something in one universe is affecting something in another, in another area. Um, So that's kind of the, it's kind of my conceptual idea for the piece. And then when it comes down to the actual tangible music, I have, compose different layers of material that unfold, like I was saying, according to their own timeline. So they will, I kind of wrote them independent of one another and then lined them up and saw Uh what happened and then made choices based off of what that happened, you know, what was going on in order to develop the piece further. Sure. So in your, in your concept and your plan, what, what happens at that about six and a half minute mark as, as things expand and grow uh, sort of this, this big bubble of sound before it dies out again uh, at the end. Yeah. So that's kind of 
a moment for me where everything starts to come together and there's like a big sort of eruption of noise that happens and we have the strings playing like very low fast notes and then eventually working their way up the registers of the instrument so the pitch kind of goes upwards and then things start to, you know, the brass really starts to come forward and everything just kind of explodes in this one moment and I don't want to quite ruin the ending but we <laughs> will get to hear the aftermath of that coalescence. All right, well, we're going to listen to Aeolian Dust performed here by the Yale Philharmonia conducted by Inmo King.
All right, we're going to move next to chain link fences. So this choral piece uses text that answers the questions, what would you do to change the world? What would we need? So can you talk about how you collected this text first? Yeah, I'd, and if I may, I'd actually like to talk about the source of inspiration. Oh, absolutely. Text. I, um, I do forget the name of this article and the author, but a while back, I, I read this article about the construction of Lincoln Center and they, they were spinning it to say, oh, this is supposed to be for the community, for all of you. This is an educational experience that is meant to better your lives. But its construction displaced a lot of people out of their homes and it turned into this big project that people who have lots of money can buy tickets to go see and you know, people who are less fortunate may not be able to actually reap the benefits that they said that this was intended for. Mm -hmm. And I asked myself, why, why are these privileged people telling others what they need in their lives and that Lincoln Center will be a good thing for you. And I was very, I was very put off by the idea that people were like, this is what you need in your life to improve it. So I kind of wanted to ask people in my community what they needed, what, what they desired to improve their lives. So I set out to, you know, I put out this like anonymous comment box into the like various places in New Haven in the community and collected hundreds of responses. And I was, I was blown away. And some of them are more comical and others are more profound. Um, you know, some people would write, we need more parrots. And it's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, the more profound responses, I, you know, one of my favorites, which is the namesake for the piece is we need fewer chain link fences. Hmm. And I, I, that really struck me. So that kind of became the like the, the big impactful moment of the piece that was built up to from all these other responses that I've compiled. So the, the text that the singers are using are just the, the snippets from these responses that you received, correct? Absolutely, and nothing else. That, that's amazing. So at the climax, that's the, the chain link fences idea. Um, is that, does that come across as a singular idea there in, in the middle or is it, interwoven with other ideas still? Well, I think so. There's a moment where, um, where the, the choir and the ensemble kind of, kind of die out and you have this solo piano moment. And then, mm -hmm. uh, then a soloist, a soprano comes in and sings the lines, we need fewer chain link fences and goes on um, with that. And that's kind of like, I don't, I don't know if it, I want to say it's the moral of the story, but it's, it's the, it's the text that I, chose to highlight and thought it was very poignant and um so when the rest of the ensemble comes in they they echo what she's singing but also all of the other texts are there underneath so it's you know it goes it has moments of where it's one singular idea and then it has other moments where in the beginning singers are essentially all singing different texts and it creates it creates a certain texture but accomplishes a different goal sure did you use all the all the responses or you just, you just selected oh, no. the ones you like best? <laughs> it is, would be is the parrot be, one in there is what I'm asking. <laughs> the, the parrot one is not in there. Um, you know, there were some very funny ones, but I want it, I, I wanted to, I wanted to kind of organize the responses and, you know, find something that felt whole instead of choosing every, you know, I didn't know how to put in like a comical part. You know, right. and that's not what the piece was about for me. So, um, 
so yeah, I did have to sort sort through those responses, which was uh, hilarious and time consuming and interesting. <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to listen to Chain Link Fences performed by the 2017 Norfolk Chamber Choir, conducted by Simon Carrington uh, with soloist Addie Sturrett.
Third today, let's go to Conversations with Strangers for SATB Chorus. This is a highly charged text dealing with a range of topics and emotions surrounding addiction and suicide. Uh, so I'd love to, to hear how you went about writing this piece. So this is one of the rare instances for me where I have the idea before I have the, um, like the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I was, I remember I was taking, I forget where I was going, but I was on a plane and started a conversation with a woman next to me. And we it just started to get very deep and intimate kind of out of nowhere. And I was, I was very struck by this. And I asked, I asked her, I said, would it, would it be okay if I like took, it sounds so weird, but if I took notes and, you know, I, I'm an artist, I, I love to use your words in, in a, in a piece one day because what you're saying is it's very it's very important to you and it's very emotionally charged and i was just struck by how you can have these intimate moments with people who you've never met before and you will never see again mm-hmm. so i took that idea and started going places and striking up conversations with strangers hence the title and um yeah did a similar sort of sifting through text and came up with these, these uh, shorter, you know, few lines long stories that are um, not too, you know, a little ambiguous. You know, I didn't want to didn't want to make them so detailed that other people couldn't relate. So I tried to uh, make something that everybody could somewhat um, attach to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so how did I'm just curious, because it, it is such a um, it, it's a very emotional text with, with what you have come up with. Um, and I, it seems like that would be a very emotional process, very personal process in writing music to it as well. Uh, I was, was there anything personally happening in your life at that time that, uh, came through into the music or, or as you were selecting the text? I'm just, I'm just curious about this process. I really, um, when I'm writing, at least in my history of writing choir music and music with text, I tend to remove myself personally from, I mean, I'm, I'm affected by the things that, that are being said, but I don't try to put my personal life into those words. Mm-hmm. And I think um, I was very fortunate at the time where I wasn't personally dealing with any of these problems and I think, you know, since getting older, there are ways in which, you know, I know, you know, there's, I know more darkness now than I did in 2014, <laughs> as one does when you get older. So I think, um, I think I might have been more troubled by, you know, trying to work on something. I think I'd be more troubled now than I was then. It seemed, uh-huh. it seemed like I knew based off of the words what, what needed to be done in the text or in the music to emphasize what's needed in the text. Awesome. All right. Well, we are going to listen to Conversations with Strangers performed here by the Yale Camerata conducted by Maggie Brooks.
All right, our last piece today is Bound for Cello and Flute. So I understand this was commissioned and performed by Mar- Martha Congo and Ben Larson as part of Pieces of Eight. Uh, can Martha you tell Cargo. Us- I'm sorry? I'm sorry, Martha Cargo. Oh, what did I say? <laughs> Congo? Oh, I, I meant to say Cargo. I will try to go back and fix that. <laughs> can you tell us about this commission and how this piece came about? Yeah, so um, I was I was approached by, by Ben Larson in particular, who reached out to me and said, Hey, I'm a fan of your music. I would love to, I would love to, to commission you for this project, Pieces of Eight. And it was commissioned from eight composers and that, you know, they had come across music from, but haven't commissioned before. And uh, it was really my, served as my first commission. So I was very excited to take on this project and I wanted to I wanted to kind of play on the typical roles that instruments are cast in. So the flute you'd think of as having um, having the more melodic lines and then the cello would be more supportive, uh, laying the foundation, playing the bass notes. You know, I think of Pachelbel's Canon and I could just give them, you know, <laughs> something very repetitious that the flute could do all these amazing tricks around. And I, I didn't want to adhere to those roles in, mm-hmm. um, in you know, they all, you know, <laughs> I, um, they don't, they don't always, they don't always fit in those roles, but they have moments where they come out. There's moments where the cello is, um, is registrally higher than the flute. Um, so I try to play with the idea of when they do break out and why. And so what, what brought the title bound? Bound it come, that came from the idea of like the cello being bound to its its role in the classical music world and the flute being bound to to their their role of playing the the lead parts and the high parts and very lyrical parts kind of a thing fabulous well let's listen to bound performed here by martha cargo and ben larson
So Natalie, what are you working on now that you can tell us about? Uh, right now, I am working on my dissertation. Actually, <laughs> that's a joy. Yeah, so I've been <laughs> I've been doing I've been doing a lot of listening, uh, in particular to the music of Tigran Hamasyan. And uh, what I love about his he's like um, he's an Armenian jazz pianist, but his influences span from multiple genres, from the jazz world to 
the you know math rock world and the uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the band Meshuga, but they do some very interesting things as well um, that are similar to Tigran's music. But a lot of his music focuses on these long ostinato patterns that cycle within something more regular like a 4-4. So like a 25-16 against a 4-4 rhythm that eventually cycles through and then will line up at some point. But mm -hmm. I'm interested in, in that line between process and groove and how to, how to achieve that balance while still having some, a visceral and exciting product. Sure. Any, any end date in mind? You have a goal of when you might like to be finished? Yeah, in the next two years, I think. I'm looking to wrap that up. All right. Well, I'll make sure I keep my eyes out on ProQuest to read it when you're done. Uh, and if our listeners want to learn more about you, what's your website? Where are you found out online? You can just Google my name, Natalie Dietrich, or go to nataliedietrich.com. I'm also on Spotify. On Spotify. Oh, All right. Sorry. Oh, no, that's... <laughs> can I redo that? <laughs> yeah. I'm not on Spotify. I meant to say SoundCloud. <laughs> Spotify, SoundCloud. It's almost the same thing. <laughs> I will be on Apple Music soon. I'll, I will have a piece on Apple Music soon. So that's exciting. Nice. Nice. Well, hey, listeners out there, if you are enjoying today's episode and would like to keep the conversation going, join us on our Facebook group, Movable Dough Listeners. Uh, there you can comment on things you're hearing in each episode, share funny music memes, or perhaps post other music from your favorite composers that haven't been featured on the show yet. So find us at Movable Dough Listeners on Facebook or on Instagram at Movable Dough Podcast. Well, Natalie Dietrich, it has been great to get to know you. Thank, for, thank you for joining me today on Movable Dough. Thank you for having me. My guest today was composer Natalie Dietrich. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledough at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. Can we edit that Spotify <laughs> moment? <laughs>